Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible or the Acts journal that you might have and turn with us to Acts chapter 11. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. While you're turning there, let me bring to your attention something many of you may have already heard of, but I want to make sure everybody gets an idea of what we're after here. On our webpage, we launched a prayer page. This prayer page was intended to allow us to do what we've seen in the book of Acts. One of the themes you see in the book of Acts is the church consistently coming together to be praying both with and for one another. Well, we can't meet physically. We're not able to meet in this place physically right now. And until we can again, we want to still continue to be able to pray with and for one another. And so you can go on our website, newhopecc.net, and you can go ahead and write out a prayer request. You can put your name on it or you can keep it anonymous. And others can come and they can read your prayer request. They can indicate whether or not they've prayed for that prayer request. They can even write an encouraging note and have it sent to the person who submitted the prayer. We want to make sure that as a church we're continuing to be praying for and with one another. So check that out with us this week. Continue to be praying as a church. As we jump into God's word this morning, let's go ahead and ask for him to teach us uh, through his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to be together. Technology is a blessing, but more, far more important than that is the unity we experience in Christ. So God, today as a church, as we come to your word in Acts chapter 11, we want to hear from you. So through your Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Give us ears to hear. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, I got to be a part of a fellowship, a group of people that were studying uh, Christianity in the past and its impact on the world and how to see the world through a Christian lens, if you will. Uh, It was a really wonderful class in a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and some of the reading assignments introduced me to the writing of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria, at 36 years old, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University at the Women's School. Um, She and her lesbian partner at the time were a part of a Unitarian Universalist church, and they led multiple different ministries in this church. Up until that point in her life, she writes, that she'd never met a Christian that wasn't intellectually impaired. (laughs) Most of the Christians she encountered spewed hateful things at her. They weren't willing to dialogue. They had no strong arguments. As a matter of fact, up until that point in her life, she would have told you that she believed that God was dead, and if he wasn't dead, due to war and difficulty and crime and hatred in the world, that if he was alive, he didn't care about his creation. She wanted really nothing to do with the idea of God. She actually writes that she believed, like Mark said, that that religion was the opiate of the people. Well, all that changed when she was invited to dinner by a pastor, Ken and his wife, Floyd, two people that you've probably never heard of, who just decided to invite her over for dinner. And everything for her began to change. As a matter of fact, that first dinner would ultimately lead to her conversion to Christ. And she's now a very prominent uh, Christian author and thinker. But she wrote in one of her books about what that first encounter with a genuine Christian was like. And I want to read you her words. She says, My lesbian identity and culture and its values, they mattered a lot to me. I came to my culture and its values through life experience, but also through much research and deep thinking. I liked Ken and Floyd immediately because they seemed sensitive to that. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. I believed at the time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses, but Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional and wise, if firm. 
and Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian script that I had come to know, when the evening ended and Pastor Ken said that he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it was truly safe to accept his open hand. Since the beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure, and this simple meal in a pastor's home was the first leg of the journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and off studying scripture and my own heart. Ken knew at the time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. See, when I read her words, my first thought was there is something so incredibly attractive about the way Ken and his wife Floyd lived their lives. See, Rosaria is now a very prominent Christian author and thinker. But that journey, her life change, all started in the home of a Christian couple who decided to open their front door. They decided to take the words of Jesus seriously when he said, go and make disciples. They decided to put certain things aside so that they could display Christian love to another person. Man, when I read that, it just kind of blows my mind. And I'm sure many would say, and I think you'd be right, that that must not have been easy for them. But I wonder to myself, while maybe it wasn't easy, I wonder if it was natural. I wonder if Jesus was like the air that they breathed, that they had seen him so clearly and experienced his grace so prominently in their own life that it just kind of spilled out of their heart, spilled out of their mouth into the lives of everybody that's around them. And if that's the case, well, then the question for us is not like, why did that happen? But how did they get to that point? How did they get to the point where they could put some differences aside? How did they get to the point where they didn't always have to be right? How did they get to the point where they could have somebody who didn't think like them, look like them, or act like them, or hold the same values as them, sit at their kitchen table so that they could get to know them and listen to them and love them? How did they get to that point? I think it's actually pretty interesting that Christians would even begin to ask that question. Why a story like Ken and Floyd's is so unique in our world today? I mean, didn't Jesus make it pretty clear to us? In Matthew chapter 28, Before his ascension, he said, hey, your goal in life, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So anything that Jesus says after he says those words, we should pay attention to. His very next words are, therefore go. Therefore, meaning because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, go and make disciples. Dedicate your life to making disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I have taught you. And don't forget that I'm with you every step of the way. Well, in Acts chapter 1, again, before the ascension, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that Jesus was really clear when he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, your goal in life now is to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All throughout the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that the purpose, the goal of the Christian life is to go and to make disciples. I mean, we clearly see this. That when the rest of the world looks at the way that a Christian lives their life, they're going to get a glimpse of Jesus. Let me make it a little bit more personal for you. When the rest of the world looks at your life, when they spend time with you as a follower of Jesus, when they spend time in your home, they're going to get a glimpse of what Jesus is really like. You might even say it this way. When the rest of the world looks at the church or spends time with Christians, they're going to draw conclusions and make decisions about Jesus. And so what decisions are they making and what conclusions are they drawing about Jesus? 
Think about it this way. Think about an artist. If an artist has spent all of their time on a piece of artwork, maybe writing a book, maybe some of you have written a book and you know how much time and energy it takes to write that book, or painting a painting, or, or making a sculpture, and they just put their heart and their soul into it, they just put so much work into this masterpiece of a piece of art. Don't you think it would make sense then that after observing that piece of art, reading that book, looking at that painting, observing that sculpture, that you could draw certain conclusions about the artist? You see, that's exactly what we learn in the book of Acts. That the way that Christians live their lives is communicating something about the God that we claim to serve. And the rest of the world is watching. And the rest of the world is listening. And the rest of the world is drawing conclusions and making decisions about Jesus based on their interactions with us. This is the challenge of Acts chapter 11. This is the way that Acts chapter 11 is going to challenge us personally to ask the question, do I see the Lord? Do I see him clearly? And if I do, what? difference is that making in my life and the lives of the people that I'm interacting with. Now, before we actually get into the text, I want to fill you in on a little bit of the background. If you remember, we've been going back and forth since chapter 7 and 8, really, uh, between the ministries of Peter and Saul, who would later become Paul. Last two weeks, we've looked at Acts chapter 10, where Peter had an interaction and was challenged to change some of his own thinking and then called on mission to go and bring the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, to the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people. And last week, we saw how he did that. And now this gospel message of Jesus was going to be made available to all people, not just to the Jewish people, but all people were able to come back to God through Jesus because of the work of Peter in Acts chapter 10. Now, Acts chapter 11 is going to kind of develop the next stage of this as we see this church to the Gentiles and to the Jews develop and come together. It's going to develop in four different stages. The first one is we're going to see a description of how the Lord moved in such a way that the the Gentile church, the church at Antioch, began to develop. Second, the church in Jerusalem hears about this and they want to know what's going on, so they send a report. They want to know, hey, is this legitimate? Are these actual Christians? Is this some sort of a trick? And so they go and they send Barnabas. Then, third, Barnabas gets there, realizes it's legitimate, wants some extra help, so he goes on a hunting trip for Saul in Tarsus to bring him back to help him disciple. And then we're going to see, among these Christians, uh, some prophets show up, and one by the name of Agabus predicts a famine in Judea. And so these young Christians gather up resources and send them with Saul and Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to dive in deep and kind of be challenged a lot by how this all develops. But before we do, I want to pray as we open up God's word that he would speak very, very clearly to us. Let's pray once again for that. Father, I thank you for your word. As we begin to read your word, allow us to humble ourselves so that your word can read our hearts. Communicate what you want to communicate to us this morning, Father, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, we pick up here where the Christians, they've been scattered from the persecution that arose from Stephen being martyred in Acts chapter 7. If you remember that, Saul, uh, Paul, stood by and allowed this to happen. Well, then he goes on a rampage and he begins this large persecution, forcing the Christians to scatter and to go in different directions. Now, 
But what we learned in Acts chapter 1 is that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses and the Holy Spirit will come and he'll move. And then there's going to be a scattering as the gospel begins to spread. Well, we're kind of seeing that come to fruition here in Acts chapter 11. We're seeing that scattering begin to take place. And Antioch is one of those places where the gospel kind of lands. It's this strategically designed city. It's a very large city, strategically designed with a grid of streets so that the cool breeze from the coast would come and hit the city. And this is the first time the gospel comes to a very large city. As a matter of fact, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So think of it like the Chicago of the Roman Empire. You've got Los Angeles, right? And you've got uh, New York City, and then you've got Chicago. Now you've got Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman world. It was in Syria, so it wasn't too far away. It was a protected coastal city. But it was multicultural, it was multidimensional, had all kinds of different, it was very urban, a lot more people. In fact, more than 10 times the size of Jerusalem. And it was like a moral cesspool, as some people said. All kinds of different beliefs, all kinds of different moral uh, failings, all kinds of uh, different behavior that would not line up with the Christian teaching. So you're thinking to yourself, man, this is not the ideal place to have to go and do ministry. This is going to be really, really difficult. Especially difficult to plant a church. You think about the pressure put on you to plant a church in a city like this. But yet when we read here, it's like they just go. It's like second nature. It says, yeah, these Christians, they become Christians. They hear the good news and they can't help themselves. They really understand this good news and they go and they just have to share it. How did it become so natural to them? They didn't even hesitate. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to tell these Gentiles, these non-believers all about Jesus. And that's what they do. They begin to tell all these Christians about Jesus. This is where the challenge for me comes in. How does it just spill off of them like that? How does it become so natural for them? Let me illustrate it for you this way. It kind of gives us a glimpse. It kind of gives us a kind of a a hint as to what's really going on here because it's more, these are not just soldiers going on and obeying and doing what they're supposed to do. And I know I'm supposed to do this, so I go do it. There is something much deeper going on, this heart transformation, not just behavior modification, but it's rooted in something. And, and so let me illustrate it with you, for you with the Bible. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, we're, we're introduced, uh, we've been introduced to the prophet Isaiah. And he's given this vision of God. And the vision in Isaiah chapter 6, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And he sees these angel-like creatures, cherubim, and they have six wings, and they're covering their feet and their eyes, and they're, and they're flying with two wings. And they're repeating themselves over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then it says that the, the entire earth begins to shake because of the glory of God. And, and Isaiah tells us that when he sees that, when he sees God clearly, he's undone. I mean, he understands his own sin. He understands the sin of his people. He is just completely a wreck. And, and after that encounter, God asks this question. After he you know, kind of restores Isaiah, he says this question. Who will go for us? Meaning, who's going to go and tell these people what I have said and who I am? And Isaiah famously stands up and says, Here am I, Lord. Send me. I'll go. Now that text, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, has been used to motivate and inspire many people to go on the mission field. Many people to step up and take another step of maturity. That Here I am, Lord, I will go. I will go for you, this rallying cry. And it should be because it's an incredible text, but I don't think it's the source of Isaiah's passion. I don't think he just wanted to respond. He said, I think the source doesn't come from chapter 6, verse 8. It comes from chapter 6, verse 1. It's not when he says, here my Lord, send me. It's when he says, I saw the Lord. You see, he gets a very clear picture of God. And when he sees God, that's what motivates him to want to go and live for God. But the starting place for Isaiah was to see the Lord clearly. 
And I think that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 11. It wasn't just, we got to go reach the world because we got to reach the world because we're on a mission. It was, man, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We know the good news of Jesus. And when you know the good news of Jesus, you can't help but want to share it with other people. You see, this is what's going on in Acts chapter 11. To these Christians that were going to Antioch, they understood that they no longer had to achieve their standing. They knew that, and what we should know, that Christianity, all back then and now and for all of time, Christianity is the only worldview, philosophy, religion, or idea, the only one that teaches you that salvation is received, not achieved. And man, when you experience that, that it is a free gift that you don't deserve, you can't help but want to offer that same gift to other people because you know they don't have to change their, everything about themselves before they come to the Lord. It's coming to the Lord and seeing the Lord that will ultimately change everything about them. Well, this grabs the attention of the church in Jerusalem. They hear about all this life change going on, and they're intrigued. Look at verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw that all that the grace of God had done. I love how Luke writes, constantly reminding us that it is the work of God, not of man, that the gospel is spreading. When he saw that, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now the Jerusalem church, they hear about this. All these Gentiles becoming Christians in this church beginning to grow. They're curious. They want to see if it's uh, legitimate. They also know that if it is legitimate, there needs to be some unity among all of the different churches. You see, churches were not these silos that competed with one another. No, those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to make sure that they're following the Lord. We want to encourage them. We want to support them. We want to resource them. We want to do everything we can to be united. And so they send Barnabas, and that's no accident. See, this is a side note. This is why the text is so rich. I love this. I love this, because we could do an entire sermon on the fact that they specifically chose Barnabas to send to Antioch. In the same way, churches, when they're supporting missionaries, they don't just send anybody that wants to go. You're not looking for a warm body. You need to vet them. You need to make sure that they're legitimately, they have a good reputation, that they're actually going to go and do the work that they're being sent to do. And the church in Jerusalem wants, they, they did not just, hey, let's just send Barnabas because it's Barnabas. No, they understood certain things about Barnabas. That he was from Cyprus. And the church in Antioch was planted from Jewish Christians from Cyprus. So at the very least, Barnabas would know them. And if he didn't know them, he'd be able to build a quick chemistry with them. So this was strategic in sending Barnabas. He had a strong reputation among church leaders. As a matter of fact, they had all named him the son of encouragement because he always rooted for the underdog. He was always willing to help people out. He was always willing to go the extra mile. He was there to serve and not to be served. His ethnic and cultural background made him able to navigate a big city like Antioch. He understood how to to walk the streets and how to interact with people and how to make it. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we're told that they made the right choice because when the church at Antioch is named, and when they're talking about the church at Antioch, the very first leader they mention is Barnabas. And so he actually lived up to it. The text here also tells us that he was a good man. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And because of the way he lived, many people came to know the Lord. But here's what I don't want you to miss about these verses. I want you to notice what he does and what he doesn't do. Notice that he does not get to these Christians, see what God is doing, and say, okay, we need a strategic plan to multiply. He doesn't come on the scene and say, we need programs and classes, and we need to make sure that you're reading the right things and doing the right things and behaving the right way. We need to... It's not what he does. All of those things are very important. All of those things are very good, but they're not the place to start. 
He comes on the scene, he sees these Christians, and the first thing he's going to do is to say, I want to encourage you to remain faithful to the Lord with all of your heart. In other words, he's telling them, you got to start with seeing the Lord before you say, here am I, Lord, send me. See, he wants them to understand that discipleship, it's important for you to learn, it's important for you to be trained, it's important to be strategic, all of that is good, but that is not where we start. We start with, I see the Lord, and because I see him clearly, I'll go. Look at verse 25. Barnabas then, evaluating the situation, decides to go to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people with disciples. Or the disciples there were called Christians first at Antioch. And so Barnabas is beginning to work with this church, decides to go. We don't know why exactly he went on a, on a mission looking for Saul. We do know from the original language that when it says that he went to look for him, it said he went on a very difficult search for Saul. I mean, he really had to look for him. Then he had to bring him from Tarsus back to Antioch so they could spend an entire year teaching. And it turned out it was well worth the search because when he got back, uh, the church began to continue to grow. They were being discipled. He was teaching them. They were pouring into him for an entire year. They were discipling this young church to the point that these Christians decided, hey, we have a better understanding. We see the Lord more clearly. And they intentionally named themselves Christians. Anyone who tells you that they're not called Christians anywhere in the Bible missed out on Acts chapter 11 because the church intentionally calls themselves and identifies themselves as Christians. We are Christians, followers of Jesus. Meaning we see him so clearly, we can live no other way than to follow him from now on. From here, uh, the famine is predicted, like we said earlier, that famine is predicted, and then resources are gathered, and they're sent with Saul and Barnabas. And from here, Saul's ministry begins to take off. So he goes on multiple missionary journeys. Uh, again, I want to remind you the impact that Barnabas had on Saul. Imagine if Barnabas didn't go get him from Tarsus. Imagine how many great missionaries we've missed out on because they didn't have a Barnabas, a person with great reputation, a deep love for the Lord, someone who saw the Lord clearly and then consistently responded, here am I, send me. I want to close out with two things, really. Two challenges, if you will. And these are so vitally important for us. So I want you to make sure that you're, you're, you're with me on this. These two challenges that come from this text, that if you'll let them in, they'll sink in deep in your heart and they'll have a profound impact on your life. They'll help us as we begin to live on mission. As we begin to understand, how in the world am I supposed to live like this? Well, the first one is to understand the importance of living on mission. It's not optional. It's not optional whether or not you get to live missionally if you follow Jesus. Jesus didn't make the Great Commission multiple choice. All right? and, and when Paul, when he would write to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he didn't say you're an ambassador for Jesus, meaning you represent Jesus in everything you do, specifically saying when the world looks at you, they're going to see Jesus. He didn't say, unless you're not up for it. That's not what he said. He said every Christian is a missionary. That's what the New Testament tells us. Every single person who claims to follow Jesus is a missionary. You're a missionary to your family members. You're a missionary to your friends. You're a missionary to co-workers. You're a missionary to your neighbors. You're a missionary to your acquaintances. You're a missionary to the people you don't even know that happen to be seen the way that you live your life. Like the artist, every single Christian is pointing to the one who created them. So let me ask you this question. How is your life, the masterpiece, as Paul would put in Ephesians chapter 2, the masterpiece of your life, how is it communicating about the artwork? How is it communicating about the artist? See, what is your life saying about the artist who created you?
The second thing we learn, though, is this, that we, we must start every day, we must start with clearly seeing the Lord. Throughout my ministry here at New Hope and, and uh, throughout my entire time in ministry, one of the consistent conversations that you have with people is how they deeply desire to live a life of impact for the kingdom, but they don't know how. And a lot of the times the temptation is, oh, I'm going to give you this podcast to listen to, or you should read this book, or, or you should go to this conference, or check out this event, or be a part of this group. And while all those things are good, the starting place, I've learned over time, can't be any of those things. The starting place is to ask them deep and probing questions about their own walk with the Lord, about whether or not they see him. And so today, if you find yourself wanting to have an impact but not sure that you know how to, I would say evaluate the relationship you have with Jesus. Do you see him clearly? Are you experiencing his grace on a daily basis? And if not, or if so, no matter where you land on that spectrum, study the gospel, study the Bible. Don't study it like a Bible college student, though, or a seminary student who's studying it like a textbook getting ready for an exam. Don't, don't study the Bible that way. Study it instead like someone who has just seen a, a sunset or a star-filled sky that took their breath away as they stood in awe of it. And study it like the person who's missing a loved one and studies the picture of the person that they miss and can't wait to see again. When my wife and I began to date, she came back up here to Indianapolis. I stayed down in Florida. And uh, I asked one of her friends to send me a picture of her because I just wanted to be able to see her. I, I just wanted to be able to look at a picture of her. This is before we had te- uh, text messages where you could look at pictures. Like, and so I just wanted a picture. So I got a picture of her that I've kept to this day that I just wanted to be able to see her picture because I missed her like that. I yearned to be around her. And it's that same kind of yearning we should have for the Lord. I just, I just yearn to be with him. I just want to spend time with him. And you've heard me say this over the years. Discipline precedes joy. If you want the joy of being with him, you have to go through the discipline of spending time with him. Do you have that deep yearning, that desire for him? I love the way that the French poet Antoine Exupery said it this way. He said this, If you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipping manuals or shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. What he meant was that as a man yearns for the sea, his lack of know-how, it's not going to keep him landbound for long. He'll figure out the skills that are necessary to sail. See, our problem is not that we haven't figured out the perfect program or we haven't written the perfect book or the to-do manual on how to reach the world for the lost. See, our problem is that we don't yearn to be with the Lord, to see him. See, if you get that yearning deep inside of you, no program, no podcast, no book or event, though those things are good will be able to put in you what that yearning does. If you have a yearning to be with the Lord, it's going to light a fire inside of you that nothing else can put out. A fire for reaching the lost. So this week, I want to encourage you two ways. I want you to pray. I want you to pray specifically that the Lord would open the eyes of your heart so that you'll see how wide and how deep and how high and how long the love that God has for you in Christ and pray Pray that he gives you the eyes to see what he's doing in the world as he uh, activates that fire inside of your heart. Allow that truth to simmer inside of you and pray that the Lord would take the simmering of that love that you have for him because he first loved you and activate it into a fire that nothing could put out. Look, as we begin to live this way, understand, as one author put it so well, that sending fruit is produced by deep gospel roots. 
And so this week and going forward, let's plant deep gospel roots so that the Lord can produce in us a desire to reach everyone else that's around us. And may we respond to that like Isaiah in both verses 1 and verse 8. Lord, I see you. Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our opportunity to be together. And God, if I'm honest, there are times where I wish that my sermon, my sermon could, could inspire and activate people to go and do what they never could do before. But Father, that's just not, that's not the case. My prayer is that the sermon would just point people to you, that you would do what only you can do that you would put inside each and every one of us a desire to be with you as we see you clearly, as we come to understand the grace that you have given to us, Father, would you put in us a fire, a fire in our bones to reach the lost. But God, help us start in the healthiest place. Help us to start by seeing you clearly. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for your grace. Father, as we have gathered this morning, through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to scatter and to live for Jesus. Father, we want to see you, and when we do, help us to respond like Isaiah. Here we are, God. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen.